the, the passage is quite simple. The question, certainly, of the passage is really simple, isn't it? Look at it there in verse 25. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, we're looking at this today simply because uh, this, the answer to that question uh, ought to be etched in our hearts and our minds all the time if we're Christians here today. It, especially at the beginning of the year, I guess, it's good to get our priorities straight, isn't it? But our daily hope, I think, should be secured in the answer to this question. Now, what if you're not a Christian here today? Well, one, you're hugely welcome to be here. Uh, and if you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and personal Saviour, then welcome. But please, please, please listen here, because the answer to this question is precious. It is more precious than anything that you know now. But the question is, uh, well, it's from this well-known story, and it's a good question. But at the same time, that question is also a terrible question. And I'll unpick why in a moment. Jesus' answer, as we look at it, is brilliant because he loves the person, he tests the person, uh, he challenges, and the answer is surprising. And, and I guess, as some of us, it might even frustrate us. And that is a strange thing about a parable like the Good Samaritan, as we look at it now. You know it. I guess many of you might have taught it to children, or at some point, you know, around the table, you've, you've mentioned it. This is the one we know, isn't it? And we do know it in a way, because the story is simple. And we understand the illustration. We know Jesus, uh, the answer to Jesus' question in verse 36. The Samaritan. The Samaritan was the good neighbour. We know the answer. Oh, we can just tick this one off, can't we? It's really easy. And so we wrote, read verse 37 as we get to the end. And he says, go and do likewise. And we go, yeah, brilliant. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, if the whole world were to read this parable and this story and attempt to be the good neighbour to those around them, of course the world would be so much better. Can you imagine, just in, in a purely humanitarian way, if, if there were so many more people in Syria right now who were to read this and go and be a good neighbour, go and do likewise, the place would be a lot better, wouldn't it? But often the context of this parable, I think, is ignored. And in so doing, what we end up doing is we read it upside down. The context, you see, think about it for a moment, look at it. It's not a man seeking to be a good Samaritan, is it? That's not the aim of the man who comes to visit Jesus. He's not seeking to be more merciful. The context is the man coming to see Jesus and he's trying to trap Jesus. He's trying to test him. He's a teacher of the law. We see that, a Jewish expert in the scriptures. And they were not happy with Jesus. As we're looking through Mark's gospel, we know that, don't we? They plot to kill him from chapter 3 onwards. Jesus and his followers, you see, have been teaching about the kingdom of God. But not in the way that these teachers of the law would have appreciated at all. And so the story begins. We've got this teacher looking to unpick Jesus and his understanding of the Old Testament. And so he asks, first point, the big question. Now look at it, it's verse 25 through to verse 27. I said it's a good question, but I think it's also a terrible question. And it's a good question because don't you wish that more of your friends would ask questions like that? 
Yeah, it wouldn't be lovely, wouldn't it? If in, in the office, you know, over lunch, someone said, oh, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That would be really lovely, wouldn't it? Probably take you by surprise. You might even drop your microwave lasagna. <laughs> At least they've been looking a little bit beyond now. Most of our friends are so secular, you know, by the definition of that word, they're consumed with today, now. They ignore what will be. But do you hear the condition of the question? He wants eternal life, but he wants it his way and on his terms. What must I do, he says. It's a big question and it deserves and it gets a very big answer. Jesus knows he's been tested here. And so he comes back to the expert in the law and he's looking for an answer. But with, he, and he, 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 Jesus gives him a test of his own, really, and it's brilliant. And you kind of wonder, ooh, ooh, I wonder who's going to win, Jesus or teacher of law. They're both testing each other. Ooh, uh, yes, we know, don't we? Look how Jesus replies. What is written in the law? He's essentially provoking, think about it, is he provoking an expert in the law to find the answer that he should know himself? He knows it, and, and in knowing the answer, Jesus is going to expose the false hope that he has in himself to gain eternal life. And so Jesus goes further, doesn't he? Look at it, look what he says. He goes, how do you read it, by the way? Which is a lovely way. He's not questioning whether he you know, gets a Kindle out or you know, a scroll or papyrus or anything like that. No, more likely he's helping the expert to come to the only sensible answer. There's two possible answers. How do you read the law? Do you, do you start at Genesis 1-1 and spend about five hours and go through to the end of Deuteronomy? Is that, that's one way. Or do you take it in summary form? There's two summary statements of the law within the law. And they come in Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19. And, and he answers rightly. He goes, look at verse 27. He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. He's, he's taking one of those summary statements. And secondly, second summary of the law, love your neighbour as yourself. So he's saying, you see, to inherit eternal life, you've got to keep the law. What law? The entirety of the law summarised in those two statements. Love the Lord your God with all heart, soul, strength and mind. Love your neighbour as yourself. Now you see, what Jesus has done is brilliant. Unbeknownst to this expert in the law, he's been totally unpicked, exposed. And the law does that, doesn't it? As Paul puts it in Romans, the law condemns. Even in these two summary statements, do you see how it exposes this teacher in the law? And all of us? Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Be honest. Do you? Archbishop William Tem Temple once famously said in relation to this, he said, Religion is what you do with your solitude. Religion is what you do with your solitude. That is, when you're quiet, what do you consider? If not God, then what you consider is, part, is in part your religion. That is, it's what dominates your heart and your mind. And that could be all sorts of good things, like relationships and children and your job and your career. And 
possessions, they're, they're good things, but they're what you long for. They dominate your heart. What do you consider in your solitude? What do you daydream about? You see, none of us love God with the entirety of ourselves. Likewise, look at look how Jesus unpicks him again. Likewise, love your neighbour. Now, the scope of this requirement, it would be like the, let's think, uh, you know, Olympics, 100 metres men's final, okay? The biggest race of the whole Olympics. It would be like the silver medal winner of the Olympic 100 metre men's final, okay? It would be like them being as pleased for themselves as they were for the person that came first. That would be loving their neighbour, the one who's on a little bit higher than them on the podium. You know, loving them as much as they love themselves. Now, you've got to realise that the difference between silver and gold is reckoned to be about 50 million. That's the difference in kind of sponsorship and all that kind of other stuff. You don't even know who came second, I don't think. I can't remember. I know it was the same bot came first, but I don't know who came second. You see the difference? But you see, it would be as... To love your neighbour as required in the law is to be as pleased for them as you would be yourself. This summary, you see, of the law exposes everyone. Whether you're an agnostic or an atheist, they may love others and themselves, but they live with no reference to God. So, you know, they fail on number one, as we all do. It hits more religious folk because they may love God, but their relationship with God has no impact on their lives and how they relate to others. They can't love neighbour. But can any of us? No. Not in our entirety. Well, this initial big question leads the expert to the, of the, uh, to the law. And he exposes himself, as he exposes all of us, doesn't he? We are all of us, every single one of us, totally inadequate in and of ourselves to gain eternal life through keeping the law. And it exposes us to this second point, the, the impossible standard. The impossible standard. Let's look at verse 28 and 29. Jesus points this out. Look at verse 28. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you'll live. You, you, you've got it right, expert in the law. Okay, just do it. Off you go. Do it and you will live for eternity. Go on. Give it a try. Problem is, it's too much for any of us, isn't it? And Jesus, in the language says, he's saying, do this. That is, keep the law and keep on keeping the law. That's the way the kind of tense is written there. Do this perfectly and you will inherit eternal life. But if you do not, you will not. That's the point. What do we conclude, therefore? Well, we can't inherit eternal life in and of ourselves. We need help. We need a saviour. And if relationship with God is what we've been made for, uh, well, the problem is that the expert is confused at this point because even though he's answered correctly, he still thinks that eternal life with God, relationship with God, in some way is to be earned as we live our lives before God. But we can't reach this impossible standard on our own. We cannot do this and live, as Jesus says. So this expert does what most of us do in our minds, I guess, every single day. Look what he does. Verse uh, 29. Jesus spots it, obviously. He wants to justify himself. He, he wants to be able to say to Jesus, 
look, I know, I know I'm not perfect. I know you say do this and live and you will live. And I'm not perfect, but I've done this wonderful thing. Have you seen what I did for my granny over Christmas? Have you seen how good I am comparing to that person over there? He just sought to justify himself. Surely that's enough to gain eternal life. That's what he's thinking. Look at verse 29. He wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbour? How brilliant is that question, by the way? Have you seen it? Who is my neighbour? The expert wanted to justify, in a sense, his limited love of God and his limited love of neighbour. You want, just want to check, how, how, far do you, how far do you want me to extend this kind of neighbourliness? You know, I'm, I'm, just, just clarify for me. But now Jesus is about to blow his world apart as he paints a picture in this parable of love that I think humbles us all, doesn't it? Because it extends to all. So what has happened? Let me summarise before we dive into the kind of parable that we all know incredibly well. The big question comes about eternal life. Uh, And this expert uh, turns to the law. He attempts to justify himself and his inadequacy before God. But now he is about to be fully exposed. So there's a big question that exposes an impossible standard for us all. And that leads thirdly now to the perfect example. We're going to look here at verse 30 through to verse 37. Let's look at this together. The perfect example. So Jesus asks... Who is my neighbour? And what follows, I think, is probably ranked in one of the top three best-known parables of all. The Good Samaritan. And let's just run through it very fast, indeed. Uh, There's this nondescript man who's beaten on the Jericho Road. Now, totally plausible. Uh, It was a dangerous road. This happened regularly. He's taken by robbers, beaten, stripped and left half dead by verse 30 we see. And this is where hearts and minds begin to be shocked. Let's have a look at it, run through it. I'm going to go fast here, but look. Verse 31, a priest happened to be going down the same road. Happened to be, as if by chance. Now, culturally, there would have been a sense of relief at this point. Everyone's going, oh, oh, there's help on the way. Wonderful. It would be like the story being told today and a person walking by would be some like aid worker back, on, back from Africa, happened to have like a satchel full of like medical equipment. It's brilliant, it's all oh, fantastic. Someone who's totally devoted to their care and of the marginalised and poor is walking by, just happened to be, everything's going to be fine. But, verse 31, when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, verse 32, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now, just think about the experience of the first listeners here. Their experience as they're hearing this story. It would be utter relief. Oh, there's a priest, there's a Levite. Oh, everything's fine. To utter shock. But don't be too hard on them. Don't be too hard on the priest and the Levite here on the Jericho Road. They're just thinking, it's a dangerous place. It's a really dangerous place with lots of caves and the robbers could have just hidden behind there and you know, they sometimes put someone out on the road to kind of like trap people to think there was someone actually in the road uh, but it was actually one of them and then they came out and got, you know, all these things happened. It's dangerous. This man on the road probably appeared dead therefore to stop 
Well, he's dead anyway. It's just that would be to risk your life. You, you just carry on quickly. Both Levite and priest, in a sense, needed to keep going. It's a reasonable and a very rational thing to do. Now, you can think about it here. What about my darling child in the pushchair? I need to keep going. What about my meeting at work? I, I, I must keep going. You can hear the kind of rational thinking in both. The priest and the Levite do exactly as many of us would. They are reasonable and they are rational. But look at the Samaritan, verse 33. A Samaritan, as he travelled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. Now think about what this Samaritan did for a moment. He risked his life, he destroyed his plans, and he stopped and got his hands dirty. How many of us do this? Here's some cash, goodbye. The Samaritan was sacrificial with his time, with himself, and with his money. With the pity he has for this man, and that's not a pejorative, you know, looking down term, it's a love. He does six or more things. Look at them, verse 35 and verse 34 and verse 35. And, and simply, what is he doing? He's doing exactly what the commandment requires. He is loving his neighbour, and it's being spelt out in multicolour here for us to see. But we don't get the shock of this verse. I'm not sure I can even find a contemporary example. The Good Samaritan. You just can't get, I can't convey to you how shocking that is. Samaritans were utterly hated, you see. It would be like me saying the good ISIS leader. It's horrible, isn't it, even to hear? When Jesus in John 8, for example, was critiqued by the Jews, they described him, yes, as demon-possessed, but the parallel to that, oh, you're demon-possessed, is he's a Samaritan. That's how low the view of the Samaritans was. The Jews routinely actually purposely prayed against the Samaritans, that they wouldn't enter the kingdom of God because they didn't want to dirty the kingdom of God. That was their view. They actively pray in the temple against the Samaritans. So Jesus asked the expert in the law, who hated Samaritans, look at verse 36, which of these uh, three do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? In a sense he's asking this, isn't he? Expert in the law. Which of these three do you think did what the law requires? The priest, who you so revere, Oh, the Levite, who is so honoured in society. Oh, look at verse 37. The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. He can't even say the Samaritan. Did you notice that Jesus never answered the question in verse 29? And who is my neighbour? Do you see that? Instead, Jesus asks a question, which one fulfilled the law? Which one was the neighbour? Oh, it's the one who showed mercy. The Samaritan does everything. Nothing is missed out. He's the perfect example of mercy. And this is where we sometimes get this parable so wrong because 
That can never be me. And that can never be you. He never does anything wrong. And that can never be me. And that can never be you. When you read any story, the idea of beauty of stories is you're meant to put yourself into them in some way. Are you the Eeyore? Are you the Tigger? And all that kind of thing. You know. you know, where are you? Where are you in this parable? The Samaritan? Well, certainly Jesus wants you to be something like the Samaritan, doesn't he? Hence the command at the end of verse 37. Uh, that makes that clear, doesn't it, I think? But who should you most keenly associate yourself with within this parable and this story? We look at the Samaritan, we should rightly think, where can we possibly find that kind of love from within ourselves? Because the example is perfection. Should we look there? No, I wonder more whether we should look and more keenly associate ourselves with the man lying half dead on the road. As you begin this year, don't think too highly of yourselves. If you want to see how you stack up before God spiritually, if you want to see how in not loving God with all your heart, soul, strength and mind, and how not loving your neighbour as yourself makes you, in your stance before God, look at the man in the road, half dead, beaten, Unable. This parable, we see, was never told primarily to inspire people to change the world through acts of mercy. It was told that so that people would change their hearts and see that they would have nothing before God and that they are utterly dependent on His mercy and love and pity and sacrifice. That's why this story was told. And in seeing our need, our inadequacy, and seeing God's love and intervention in our lives through the gift of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, then and only then would we, with changed hearts by the Spirit of God, respond and possibly, quite possibly, change the world a tiny bit. See, if you read this parable backwards... That is, you, you just want to do some good stuff in the world so that you might please God, so that you think that you might inherit eternal life through doing those things. You will do it in the same way the expert in the law wanted to. That is, you'll just simply want to do those things to justify yourself before God. The expert in the law, his intention was to essentially limit his neighbourhood, limit his love. And Jesus says, no, you need to have a life and a heart of being a good neighbour. The expert in the law wanted to do things, loving things that would gain him eternal life. And Jesus said, no, there's a love that you cannot do. There's a love that you need to ask for and be given Yes, this parable is about going and doing likewise in the last verse. But first and foremost, it is about utter moral bankruptcy that we all have before God because we do not love him with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our strength and with all of our minds. 
and we do not love our neighbour as we love ourselves. We've all fallen short of God's standards that require that he requires for entry into his eternal kingdom. And the point of this, I think the main point of this whole story is that we need to trust the only good Samaritan, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? How's that possible? Because he's the one who crossed a much bigger road to show pity on us as he lowered himself coming down from heaven, born into a manger, to live a perfect life that we could not live and die on a cross to save us. Jesus poured out everything, sacrificed everything in his life, in our place, on a cross, taking a punishment that you and I deserve for not keeping the law, for not loving neighbour. Like the good Samaritan of the story, Jesus offers us new life with him. So with him then, as we trust him, we too might be a good Samaritan, trusting the good Samaritan. Only then can we be willing to sacrifice ourselves in service of the one who has saved us, and willing to, and being willing to make all those unusual sacrifices. Jesus has been willing to lose everything, hasn't he? And therefore, as we go and do likewise, we should be willing to lose time, comfort, material possessions, even the safety of ourselves and our children, to be, sorry, to be distinct from the world that loves to indulge itself. And I guess that is the life that we ought to be committed to as we begin this new year. Beware of a life that just goes from indulgence to indulgence, the Good Samaritan did not just throw cash at a man and run. He gave himself and he risked his life, his reputation. And so lastly, in response, last point, let's look at the challenging command. It's the last part of verse 37. And we, get, we must get this right, the, the right way around, if you like. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. Remember, we must go and do likewise with the transformed heart that we have by what Christ has done on the cross. You see, when someone becomes a Christian, I know many of us here are Christians, we trust in Christ, we realise that we are spiritually half dead on a treacherous road. And Jesus, the good Samaritan, he loves us, he cares for us, he pours himself out for us and transforms us and gives us a new life with the spirit in our hearts. Go do likewise, he then says, and you can if you are filled with the Spirit of God in your hearts. You will want to obey this command if you have the Spirit of God in your hearts. I guess the, the role of the elders here at church is to help us and lead us in ways to do that so that you can go and do likewise. We must always have as our priority mercifully teaching everyone that we meet about their moral bankruptcy, that they are lying on a treacherous road, if you like, before God. But we must also love our neighbour, showing mercy as the Good Samaritan did here. And what an impact that will have if we were to do that and live that out. Julian the Apostate, one of uh, uh, Roman emperors, 
who tried to stamp out Christianity at the beginning of his reign, was seeing the, the church grow, the early church grow, and was really upset about it. And he wrote to a friend called Arsacaeus, and he said this, Nothing has contributed more to the... He called uh, Christianity, the early church, a superstition. Nothing has contributed more to the superstition of Christians than their charity to strangers. While the impious Galileans, in other words, for Christians, provide not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. The letter, we see, was an observation that the natural generosity of Christians was a big factor in their growth early on. They not only look after their own, the Greeks and Romans did the same. They looked after their own. That's easy. The letter says the Christians are promiscuous with their generosity. People notice it. And it had a major impact. It was utterly radical. I hope you've been stirred this morning. I think every Christian ought to be and want to show mercy in practical and loving ways because it will make a difference. But it will mean numerous sacrifices and also numerous opportunities for the gospel too. Those two things go hand in hand. Let me finish with this. In 1843, Robert Murray McShane, who's very well known at this time of year because suddenly everyone gets his old books out and uh, he wrote... An amazing kind of read the Bible in a year. Ali's nodding because he's a Scotsman. And he knows him very well. He was a great Scottish preacher who died at the age of 27. Um, and he once ended a sermon like this. I use his words because I'm not sure I dare say them myself. Robert Murray McShane wrote these words. I fear there are some Christians among you to whom Christ cannot say... Well done, good and faithful servant. Your haughty dwelling arises amidst thousands that have scarce a fire to warm themselves and have but little clothing to keep out the biting frost. You heave a sigh, perhaps at a distance, but you do not visit them. Ah, my dear friends, I am not concerned for the poor, but more for you. I don't know what Christ will say to you on that great day. Oh, you seem to be Christians, yet you don't care for his poor. What a change will pass upon you as you enter the gates of heaven. You will be saved, but that will be all. There will be a no abundant entrance for you. He who soweth sparingly reaps sparingly, and I fear there may be many hearing me that now know they are not Christians, because they do not love to give to give largely and liberally, not grudgingly at all, requires a new heart. An old heart would rather depart with its lifeblood than its money. So friends, enjoy your money. Make the most of it. Give none away. For I can tell you, you will be beggars throughout eternity. He didn't mince his words, did he? And please note that McShane was not a lefty socialist, as some of you politicos will be thinking right now. He just had a new heart. Before you can be a neighbour, you need a neighbour. Before you can be a good Samaritan, you have to trust Jesus as the good Samaritan.
And then, and only then, you can go and do likewise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please forgive us when we uh, look at these wonderful stories and parables of Jesus and just go over the, over the top of them and just think they are just lovely and they do not challenge us. Help us to hear the challenge here. Please help us to repent if there are attitudes and actions in our lives which we need to repent of. May we trust the Good Samaritan, namely the Lord Jesus Christ, who has laid down everything for us. And may we respond to his love by loving you and loving our neighbour. Help us to go and do likewise, I pray. Amen.